We've been fighting a long time. We've all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Everybody, Steve with Sons Fidelity coming at you once again with Michael Grady and Don Brohan of Economic Personalism, the co-authors of the book, and the uh, they're also with uh, the Center for Economic Justice. I was, almost forgot that part. I almost said World Economic Forum, just because it's the topic we're on. And this episode on property. Now, everyone's probably seen me play this, or someone else has played it. They took it off YouTube because they can. Uh, of what will happen in 2030, uh, our goals of 2030. And the first one they had was you will own nothing and be happy. They also, was a, on the WF, uh, it was called, it was the original title was How Life Could Change in 2030. They changed the title of it to Here's How Life Could Change in My City by the Year 2030. Because they could. It's 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 still the original title is in the URL. Anyway, the author goes on with it says, Welcome to year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say our city? I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. It may seem odd to you, but it makes perfect sense for us in this city. Everything you consider a product has now become a service. We have access to transportation, accommodation, food, and all things we need for our daily lives. One by one, all these things became free, so it ended up not making sense for us to own much. She also talks about how they have meetings in her kitchen from basically people just come in and just invade, and it's all cool because you're massively woke by the year 2030. So, what is property? Well, I think I can start off that by boring you with the technicalities, and then Dawn can make it more human-sounding. Uh, basically, most people are very, I should stop saying basically, uh, most people really are confused about property. They think they know what it is. They, they have a possession and they say, that's my property. Colloquial, colloquial, in the vernacular, that's absolutely correct, more or less. Uh, property is not really the thing you own. It's actually two things. One the inherent absolute right every single human being has by nature. That is, simply because you're a human being, you have the right to be an owner. You can't say that, oh, well, you're a, the wrong color, you're the wrong height, you're the wrong age, you're the wrong this, you're the wrong that, you're the wrong sex, you're the wrong whatever. You're Irish. Yeah, that too. No <laughs> Irish need apply. Uh, no everyone should apply, everyone need apply to become an owner because it's part of human nature itself to own. Aristotle in his politics said that nominally free people who owned nothing were actually masterless slaves. They were worse off than actual slaves who had an owner because slaves participated in their master's lives as owned things Whereas the poor boob who owned nothing didn't even have the, the, the decency to be owned. He was nothing. One of the most remarkable things, you know, in the ancient world that Jesus did in his earthly ministry was to treat propertyless free people as if they were really human, which of course they are, but they weren't treated like that. The wage worker was nothing. Um, but to get back to the point, being an owner is part of human nature itself. It is absolute. It is put by God into what it into human nature itself. That's the first part of private property or property. The second part 
is the socially determined and necessarily limited rights that an ex that define how an owner may exercise what he or she owns. You see, the right to be an owner is absolute and unlimited because every single person has it. But what is not unlimited and must be limited is what you do, what you can own, how much you can own, and what you can do with what you own. Those are the rights of property. The right to property is absolute. The rights of property are necessarily limited. Now, in social ethics or moral philosophy, they make this really complicated and people get really confused because in, and, and you'll see this in, for instance, the, the Catholic catechism, you know, the big thick one that nobody reads, except when they're trying to find something to justify what they want to do. The right to be an owner is called the generic right of dominion. Now, what that means in English is generic means it's common to every single human being there is. Every single human being has the right of dominion. Every single human being can be an owner or has the right to be an owner. There's nothing in the fact of being a human being that precludes you from owning. Now, what about the limited rights of property? That's the universal destination of all goods. If everyone has the right to be an owner, then that also means that you can't interfere with someone else's right to be an owner. You cannot harm them in any way with what you own. You can't own everything so that they own nothing. The universal destination of all goods doesn't mean that everybody owns everything. What it means is that what I own, I have the absolute right to own, but I have a very limited exercise of what I can do with it. I cannot harm myself. I cannot harm other individuals, other groups, institutions, or the common good as a whole by the way I own. I have to look to society and to the good of other individuals and the common good as a whole when I exercise my ownership. I can't do material harm to others or to the common good as a whole. So to sum up so that someone else gets a chance to talk, property is two things, the absolute right to be an owner inherent in every single human being and the necessarily limited and socially determined rights of what an owner can do with what he or she owns. Okay, and um, to add on to what Mike was saying, and I think he is explaining property in particular to um, in, in a Catholic context, or I, I should say in a moral and um, really a, a natural law context. And uh, my uh, few thoughts would be if, that it's very important in today's world in particular that each of us understand what property and private property are in terms of our uh, connection to uh, social institutions, um, in terms of our relationships with other people. And this has to do really in terms of economic rights and responsibilities. And uh, we need to understand that this is something, it's a creature of the law. In addition to being something that's an inherent natural right, it's always going to be within, in, you know, in society, it's going to be um, allowed and protected or diminished and taken away with regard to what the government can do to individuals or what the individual's powers and rights are with regard to other people and the government and other social institutions. So to make, to simplify that as um, pro property is the right to the fruits of what one owns and the right of control over what one owns. And there's an excellent analysis of um, property in terms of uh, where Karl Marx went wrong and the need to make sure that every human being has 
access to private property, the rights of private property. And this was Lewis Kelso's Karl Marx, the almost capitalist. And we don't use the word capitalist to describe what we now call personalism. Really, that was what Kelso was talking about this, but this was in the 1950s when you had the, um, the Red Scare going on. And so you had to be careful of your language. Um, but Kelso looked at uh, how private property relates to everyday life. And he said, property in everyday life is the right of control. And that brings me back to a comment that you made, Steve, when we when you opened the show, uh, describing this sort of future vision of a world where no one owns and everyone is happy and they have everything they need at their fingertips. And okay, as soon as you said, you know, everything is free. Well, that starts to unravel that logic right there because nothing is free. Things have to be produced in order to be consumed and exchanged. So if we don't you know, look at that question and then determine, okay, we're in reality now. Who's gonna be responsible, responsible for producing the things we all need? And how do we determine who gets to have, you know, what share of what's produced? Now you can do it arbitrarily, and that's where, for example, anything external to each of us, making that decision for us, we have no control over that decision. We have no established right to what is our portion. It's the government decides based on whatever criteria it wants to use. Maybe they like some people, don't like other people. Um, and you can see some of that's now happening in China. You remember the, uh during uh, Obama's reign with Obamacare, Rand Paul came out and was talking about how if it's free, then you own the doctor. You own his practice. He works, he, he, it's, you're basically telling him he's the slave. You're exactly. in control of him. Oh, that, you know, you bring up an excellent point that slavery in terms of economics means that the owner has all the rights to the fruits of what you produce through all your labor, manual, intellectual, entrepreneurial, it's, you may have done all the hard work, but sorry, that's mine now. Yeah. And I may give you some to keep you alive. Yeah. <laughs> the definition of slavery in Black's dictionary is someone who is totally at the behest of another. In other words, you are totally controlled by someone else. Yes, so I think it's, critical for the audience listening and, and really for everyone. And I would say this is an important thing that should be taught throughout our society is what is property? What is private property? Property are those rights. Who has those rights? So when we speak of private property, we're now talking about what each person has, that they're now have a certain claim um, to what is produced. And that means they have to own the means of what produce the goods and services. And that's, uh, I own my, my own body and what I'm able to produce with it, my mind, my physical labor, I own that. So I'm entitled to that portion of what's produced based on that. But also now what's becoming more urgent every day really is to look at, well, is that much of my labor even necessary these days when we have uh, you know programs so was it Watson who could beat all the grand chess masters in the world and then I think it won in jeopardy but more important it's what's taking over the processes of production you go um, Amazon the uh, distribution centers now are becoming uh, more robotized I mean, those are not fun jobs. They're dangerous and they're repetitive. They really aren't fulfilling work, but it pays people's bills, you know, their paycheck. But now if you can use a robot that doesn't get um, sick, it doesn't complain about the pay, it doesn't have, you don't have to pay payroll taxes for it. What's gonna happen is there's gonna be more and more of a movement towards automation or robotization, artificial intelligence. So then the question is, <clears throat> if my labor, that's my means of producing, if I, it's not needed, I have no claim that if that's all I can use to produce. 
And the key to looking at this is what's producing, this is technology, and that's in every single form. It could be in the form of a system. Um, and, and so something that you don't even see, but it's part of a management system, how you bring together uh, capital and, and uh, labor to produce and owning, you can own shares in that system or what we call corporation. So the more that becomes the vital part of what is producing all the things we need, the, the things we consume, we have to own the a part of what is producing that. So we have to become, we have to gain private property rights in capital things. And the problem is that if you say, okay, we can do that. We're gonna to go to those eight richest people in the world. And there was a statistic from Oxfam that used numbers from Credit Suisse that said that this was in 2017, that the top 1% owns more than the rest of the world combined and eight individuals own more wealth than 3.6 billion people combined so there is okay they're owning they're controlling because as kelso said property in everyday life is the right of control that means as your example so people just oh well they can come into my house because i don't own it i have no say so over this they can you know, I, I spent my uh, day creating something and they can come and they can take it. I have no property rights in this. Um, in a sense, uh, eminent domain, which is a pretty much a plank of communism. Well, you know, and that's another, and that's actually a very interesting uh, concept in and of itself because it, and I think it, it deserves really a whole show discussing that because yes, it can be done in a way that deprives people of their ownership rights. And in a sense, it, it, it is that. The question is um, when you have, for example, that the example was a highway that needs to be built and you have a home, one home or a few homes that prevent that from happening and maybe the, the highway is vital, what do you do in that situation? So the uh, remedy for that in the law is you pay the owner the fair market value of that particular thing in order to allow for the, um, the common good to operate. And it's a very a difficult- people, yeah, A lot of people assume that eminent domain means that the state is the ultimate owner. That's not what it means because otherwise the state could simply take it and not pay for it. Or, nor would it have to justify a taking. The, the takings clause in the Fifth Amendment, which is eminent domain, this is the U.S. Constitution, is that the state can't just simply take what it wants. It has to offer fair payment and justify that taking because it's private property. The state does not own it. It has to demonstrate an overwhelming public need for that specific thing. Yes. So if a private corporation, for example, and there was an example of this uh, New London, in New London, Connecticut, that a private developer wanted the land of some other owners and the state allowed that private developer to take the land of, of the other individuals. So this is, this is a really, this gets into the complexity really, uh, but the principle that we have to keep in mind is what are my rights with respect to the thing that I own? And uh, and that's the, you know, where it starts to get more complex, but keeping that in mind that at least you should get fair compensation and who determines fair compensation? That's, you know, another, the next question that would come, but you're never just deprived of, you know, your, the, the benefits you got from that thing. You may have to trade assets, but, that's in the worst case. So what we're trying to look at is a system by which people can acquire private property rights in productive things and have the say-so, for example, over how those things are used. And in a corporation, it's according to how many shares you own. That's your relative slice of power. And so, 
I'm sorry. No, so I was just thinking of my because my mind just goes to movies or TV shows. Like, yeah. this does seem like a Star Trek when it, when John Luke Picard tells people that oh, in the future there's no money, no one owns anything, everybody lives in peace and harmony, and there's no theft, and we eliminated this. Isn't this like a just just basically trying to do another utopia on Earth, right? Yeah, basically what they called the Kingdom of God on Earth, and of course, by when you mentioned Star Trek. Don has been talking about that ever since they aired the episode in which he said that. <laughs> and that I and personally am offended because <laughs> my first cousin once removed was Gene L. Kuhn, who was executive producer on the original series and wrote some of the more famous episodes. So I thought, why are you betraying the vision of Gene Roddenberry and my cousin Gene Kuhn to make a stupid point that doesn't even make any sense? <laughs> Jean-Luc, I am embarrassed for you. Exactly. And, and, late, right, and, and later um, in another show, we can talk about that the point that was made in Star Trek that in, you know, now in the future, we have no need for money. There is no money. Well, that's going to raise some questions as to how they're going to buy things on other planets that do require some kind of exchange uh, for what you're, you're asking for. And what were the Ferengi using anyway? The Ferengi, right. They, what, was they, that, what was that fabulously rich tycoon or whatever who wanted to, to kidnap Data for his personal collection? How was he rich? Exactly. So, but to get, I think, to the, um, the questions relating to the Great Reset, which I think is what we're examining uh, in terms of pers economic personalism, how does that relate to this um, coming together of the richest people in the world and heads of state to determine how the economy of the world will operate? So that means for each of the rest of us who are not in on that meeting, how do we safeguard our human rights? And to go back to the wisdom of well, Daniel Webster, the, the founding, the founders of this country, they recognized, as Daniel Webster put it, that power follows property. Meaning, if you don't have property, you don't have power. Which is why we in uh, the Center for Economic and Social Justice, CESJ, we have a slogan, own or be owned. Okay, that's putting as succinctly as we are able to figure out, right? So then the question is, no one should own another person. No one should have control over another person. What is the safeguard? And that's what private property is. And starting with economics, because that's our stomachs, that's our survival, that's what keeps us alive so that we may pursue the higher purposes of being a human being. It's in the uh, Virginia Constitution, which most people don't even think that every state has its own constitution. Life, liberty, and property, as George Mason put it. No, that was in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which preceded the Declaration of Independence. And George Mason, as he originally drafted that document, put in it, he phrased it in such a way as to undermine the legal basis for slavery, to return to slavery again. And he was rather upset when they caught on to him. Of course, even though he was a slave owner, every time he wrote up a legal document, he inserted something against slavery in it. He didn't like it, but he felt trapped institutionally within, within that particular paradigm. But of course, since he had made a practice of this, the other more conservative members of that of the of the committees caught on to him immediately because they were looking for it. And they forced the insertion of a phrase that nullified his de facto abolition of the basis of slavery, which was that all human beings have inherent rights, which when they enter into society, no, we're social by nature. Uh, cannot be deprived, et cetera, et cetera. Among which are life, liberty, and access to the means of acquiring and possessing private property. <laughs> yeah, and Mike just made an important distinction. It was not just the right to life, liberty, and property. Under what Mason said, it was the right to life, liberty, with the means 
of acquiring and possessing property in order to pursue uh, happiness and security. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of a historical moment that got lost and it would have changed the course of our nation's history and the world as well. It would have sped up the process that we're trying to encourage in the world, which is how do we universalize access to the means to acquire and own productive property. Now it's capital, advanced capital, and own shares in corporations that need to use it. So when we ignored or we took out that phrase, number one, it may, I, I think it diminished the understanding of property, why it's important in a de democratic society, but it also, it, it ignored or it, uh, it destroyed that understanding of that you need to have access to the means to acquire it. Because you may have rights in the abstract, but if you can't exercise it with regard to something real, and in this case, something productive, it's like, oh, you know, I'm free, I'm free, but I'm starving to death, you know. So um, that was something that now we can actually do. And I'm going into um, later topics in, in terms of financing this so that you don't destroy private property in that pursuit of extending private property rights to every person. Well, how would you characterize capitalism, socialism, and what the people in the great, what Schwab and the Great Reset idea in terms of private property? Well, I would say that in terms of capitalism, that's supposed to be one of the central tenets is uh, the right of the owner and respect for those rights and protection of those rights. And that's fine, but they left out what George Mason was saying is that you also have this right to the means to acquire and possess things and, and to exercise property rights. So in terms of capitalism, you see that there's no institutional design for universalizing those rights. What's happened, and this has a lot to do with how we finance growth. That's a key thing to look at and how our laws and institutions are set up so that it's very hard for non-owners to get into the game of ownership. I mean, it, and it gets increasingly more difficult. And during this pandemic, when people are losing their jobs, it's just about impossible. So we have to look to a new means, which capitalism, we, we in the um, our economic personalism book, Mike has a nice matrix of how the idea of capitalism springs from the idea of individualism. And there's, you know, what's wrong with individualism? You're talking about the rights of the individual. Well, absolutely. But it's within a worldview that sees each of us as isolated, disconnected entities who don't interact in terms of the institutions and laws that we create so we can live together and not kill each other. So the problem with individualism and capitalism is that what is the moral intent? It's to accumulate capital. Okay, that's the purpose of it. It's not having enough of your own means of sustenance that you can pursue higher purposes, how, how you can search out uh, God, how you uh, contribute to civilization and the common good. No, it's accumulate capital. So that's where we would see um, how we would look at capitalism and private property. It's private property for my own benefit without necessarily in regards to other people or their opportunity to, to acquire it. Socialism pretty much comes out, this is all forms of economic collectivism, says that it, the individual should not have pro property rights. That um, this is really the, the rights start with the collective or the rights start with government. And then those entities will decide on some basis of fairness, whatever that is, who gets what. So you've disconnected people from property rights. So. Um, and under um, economic personalism, on the other hand, we're talking about individual rights 
ap the, this is the absolute right to become an owner and to have property, but in terms of how those rights are exercised, it's we all have to follow the same rules, but we also all have to have equal means, equal access to the means to acquire the things and have property in them. Yeah, for my part, I would say that what, you know, capitalism is where an elite, even though they pay lip service to the presumption that every single person has the right to be an owner, they restrict access to the means, which de facto means that only a small elite has the, the real effective right to own. And of course, if you listen to some of the more uh, elitist capitalists like Ayn Rand or others, it's because only a, a tiny elite really has the true ability to be fully human and therefore own. The rest of the people are just basically cattle to be used. Now, socialism is that nobody has the right to be an owner. The state, as an expedient or as a nice gift, may allow people to own. For example, in Nazi Germany, uh, you had the right to own something as long as the state deemed that you were using it properly. They had private property in Nazi Germany, but if you only if you were rich, because the rich industrialists helped Hitler get into power, but that's another issue. Uh, what this great reset does, in my opinion, is take the worst of both capitalism and socialism, you know, and call it inclusive capitalism or stakeholder capitalism or something, uh, <coughs> add socialist features. And by the way, capitalism and socialism aren't really all that different. A number of the first socialists were capitalists, Friedrich Engels, uh, Robert Owen, uh, or else they were rich bourgeoisie, like uh, uh, <coughs> Felicité de Lamennais or Henri de Saint-Simon or Charles Fourier, and I think I just mispronounced every French name in there. But the only early socialist of note who actually came from the working classes was Etienne Cabet, who, as far as I can tell, was probably the first one to add anti-capitalism to socialism. But to get back to it, what, in my opinion, this great reset does is take the worst aspects of both capitalism and socialism and combine them in what I think Hilaire Belloc thought of as the servile state. Now, of course, in Belloc's notion, it was to force people to work. In the great reset or modern servile statism. It's how do we get income to people or how do we find enough jobs for people? We, we can't do it because machines are producing everything. But underneath, it's the same basic assumption that some elite has rights and the rest of us don't, whether it's a state elite or a rich ownership elite. Yeah, that gets into UBI, universal basic income, because how else can you pay people not to work when the robots are working and you're just sitting at home, stimulus bills, you hear that coming out all the time. Schwab, Schwab actually writes about that in this, about helicopter uh, stimulus, getting in there and throwing money out of a helicopter. And stimulus bill. Friedman. I'm sorry? Well, he got that concept from Milton Friedman. Yeah, yeah. About helicopter money. So here's one. I hear, I've heard this from uh, back in the day when I was listening to the SiriusXM Patriot channel, uh, the Wilcom Majority. He, he brought up this idea of if he had the cure for cancer, or just exactly cure for cancer, he and he and people were not offering him like a million dollars for it, he would put it back on the shelf and say nobody's getting it. Or if the state tried to force him to uh, force him to put it out, he would put it up on the shelf. And nobody's get it because of capitalism rules. Now, I'm not saying you know we need the state to tell people what to do, but isn't that isn't that the extreme opposite of saying, well, I got it now. I'm charging a million dollars for you to have this thing instead of looking at the morality and you don't want to say common good, but they use our words against us. Yeah, I you know I think again this is where it gets into the complexities of real life and those situations 
where yes, you have private property in what you created, but if it's going to result in uh, you know a million people dying because you didn't make it available, now can we force you to give up what you've created without compensating you in some way? No, I mean it, I, I think that is due injustice, but also because and this is personalism. We each of us have those God-given inherent rights, but we are also social creatures that, you know, we can't exist as persons without other human beings. And to the extent that other people are undergoing injustice or deprivation, then that also is as social creatures, that will affect us. And if you don't think so, then look at how this uh, the pandemic situation is really stoking a lot more conflict around the world and in our own country. The divisions that are now occurring in the United States are worse than at any time since the Civil War. So we have to be thinking in terms of the structures of the common good that each of us must have equal access to. And at a certain point, something like a cure for a disease becomes part of that common good. So the question is then, how do we compensate that private individual for what they created and what they have property rights in, but to make sure that you're not harming the rest of society by blocking access to this? So I would say those are the, the trickier questions where you need to um, have people talk about this, where you need forums for um, individuals to come together and determine what is the most fair way to deal with the situation. And I want to go back to one point about private property is that that becomes the connection between participative justice and distributive justice. So in terms of not only you could say you are entitled to what you produce or your share of the reward. Well, if you couldn't participate in creating those things to be shared and divided up, then you never get to the, the whole question of distributive justice. So we have to think in, in terms of private property, what do we need? What institutions do we need in order so people could can participate as owners in the things that will produce? And then we have to decide how once everything is produced and sold, this is, has to be marketable, what is our fair share? So all those questions on a case-by-case -case basis, some may be very clear cut. Some may be more complex, yeah. Yeah, it, what, what Don's pointed out is what Aristotle called you know, the art of politics. How do you balance my rights as an individual with the rights of everyone else as individuals? How do we do this? How do we, it, it's, it's the, the tension between the generic right of dominion, the natural right to be an owner, and the universal destination of all goods, the obligation to respect the rights of others and not harm anyone. Now, this tension can be very creative. Joseph Schumpeter in his uh, theory of, well, I think it was creative destruction or something like that, yeah. tried to move toward that, but I don't think he quite made it. The, the real thing is, will this tension result in cooperation and creativity, or will it result in conflict and destruction? And when, the, for instance, the Catholic Church and the social encyclicals calls for, you know, cooperation together with uh, competition, a lot of people think that, you know, the, the you know, the unrestricted, you know, the, the the condemnation of unrestricted competition is a con is a condemnation of all competition. No, competition is good. It causes you to strive, you know, more to try to create more, but not if you're trying to destroy somebody else while you're doing it. It it it's the art of politics. To you know, how do we balance these things? It's always a balance. It's never absolutes one way or another in the exercise of these rights even though you may, everyone has those rights, absolutely. How do you solve that seeming paradox? That's what life is about in, in this world anyway. 
what it's about, you know, ultimately is to become more fully human. But in that process, how do you respect others' rights to become more fully human while optimizing your own? All right, so we got three components that we have for the reset that we want to talk about. Uh, increase the role of government to create conditions for a stakeholder economy. Uh, government control, possibly direct ownership of new capital investment to advance shared goals such as equality and sustainability. The drinking word, every time you hear that, you just take a drink. Government control of healthcare, education, and other social challenges. So how do you, how do you respond to that with personalism? Well, I think, first of all, when you mention the, the term stakeholder economy, it has a nice ring to it because, in a sense, we are all stakeholders in the success of our society and democracy and our, and our economy. The question, though, is who is going to produce and who is going to consume and who is going to have the rights in terms of, of property again? Um, and the problem when you talk about an economy based on the interests of stakeholders as determining you know who's doing the production and who's getting to consume is that it disconnects the individual from property and that claim under property for a specific portion of what is produced and it disconnects the human being the in a sense it takes away the, the rights of those who do own right now and who are responsible for their ownership and also entitled to their share of the fruits and share of the control based on their ownership. And it just sort of says, okay, indiscriminately, if you have an interest in this particular institution, and that could be, for example, in a company located in a particular area, it could be anyone who lives in that area is a stakeholder in the sense that they're going to be affected somehow by the fortunes of that company or that how that company operates as a business. The government's going to have a stake in the success of that company because they're going to be collecting taxes from it, or they may have to be um, uh, protecting the rights of the people around if there's pollution going on, for example. So. In a sense, we all have a stake in society, but that's not a good way to divide up, you know, what each of us is entitled to. It's much better for each of us to be owners. So we know we have a direct, uh, visible, determinable claim on what is produced, the goods. And we just have to make sure that everyone has the means to become an owner. So when we talk about ownership, um, we're talking about direct property rights. We're also talking about responsibilities that the owner has with regard to what he or she owns. So when you start making this amorphous and abstract, the decisions still have to be made. Who's going to make the decisions over how things are going to operate? Are you going to say, well, it's no longer the owners who are entitled and responsible. It's now another body is going to have to determine this, whether this is the, the guardians. I think there are 23 guardians are going to decide who gets what or what government. What's that? 27. Oh, 27. Sorry. 27 guardians. Oh, my gosh. As soon as you hear that, it's the state will take care of me. The guardians will take care of me. My employer will take care of me. You are in trouble. Especially when most of those guardians are eugenicists. Yeah, that's another thing. Who, yeah, <laughs> who will get to exist? So it, it really is important that we control our own means of subsistence, our own means to determine our future, where we want to go, how we want to de develop, how we want to uh, become more human. No one else should be have that control over us, and that's where personalism differs. Well, you brought, you brought up the H word, human, and this the whole idea is looking to change what being a human is. Yes, and you know, that's a good point, is that can you change human nature? And let's accept right now that human nature, we're not angels, so we have the potential for good and we have the potential for evil. I thought you knew Michael. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. He's an exception, okay? <laughs> 
He's the perfect human being. Um, hey, what kind of perfection, though? <laughs> yeah, so I think Marx and others wanted to change human nature. They saw that maybe the bad part of us, we could um, eliminate that if we, for example, eliminated the acquisitive nature of human beings. Yeah, that was R.H. Taney with his The Acquisitive Society. If yeah. you really change things, you would change human nature back to what it was supposed to be originally. Everything would be free. Uh, everyone would have enough. Uh, we'd all be living in paradise. The, or as Dr. Julian Strube of Heidelberg University pointed out, all the early socialists talked about the kingdom of God on earth. Well, later socialists changed the name, but their goal is still to create the perfect society in the here and now. Right. And I should point out, in terms of personalism, uh, we accept that human nature as it, as it is, as God created us with these potentials, that it's in our relationships with others, in our creation of our institutions, that we start to um, develop an environment that brings that, that can bring out the best in us or can bring out the worst in us. And we say so we have to be cognizant of all the different influences on us that we're able to, to shape and control. Um, I think in, in terms of, um, I'm losing my train of thought here. <laughs> um, I, so I think that it, it's important that we see that we can affect human behavior by creating better environments we can create environments that are based on justice. So that's really what we're trying to do is, is set up that social environment along principles of justice. Yeah. And I, I would say that, you know, human beings, only God is perfect. And God is infinitely perfect, as befits a creator, of course, and a source of everything. Human beings are infinitely perfectable. We will never be perfect, even though our nature is that we must become more fully human, more perfect over time. And because we're political animals, both individual and social, we do so as a rule within the polis, you know, the consciously structured society, which necessarily implies we have institutions, but institutions are human creations social habits, ways of doing things, that because they are created by imperfect people are going to be imperfect. So that the work of human beings as political animals is not merely to become more virtuous, more fully human yourselves, but to work on your institutions so that you create the proper environment within which everybody, presumably, can become more virtuous, more fully human over time. Now, because our institutions are created by imperfect people, we have to keep an eye on them. So the job of every single human being is you know, consistent with our responsibility to improve ourselves, we must also improve society and keep a constant watch on it because society is never going to be perfect despite what the socialists say and despite what the capitalists claim that they've already created. You talk with a, with a, with a typical capitalist and we've already got the perfect society. They talk with the typical socialist, oh, we can have the perfect society if you just do what I say. What we say is we will never have the perfect society, but we must all work as if we could and always improve ourselves and our institutions. Exactly, and I think that was what Father Faree was talking about with regards to social justice. That's where yeah. I stole it from. Yeah. Yes, exactly, <laughs> and it is in that never-ending process of not only making sure your, uh, your institutions are operating to allow equal access, uh, but when they become defective and they're harming individuals or groups or society as a whole, then we have to look and, and change them. And we can only change them 
by working together and organizing together. It's, it's the act of social justice is not something that one individual can do by him or herself. It must be people coming together and understanding the nature of that institution, the purpose, but also having principles of justice. So that's that's very key. And, and I would say in terms of uh, what is talked about um, at, uh, in the Great Reset is that when you use a term fair, for example. There we go again. Don, you're in my head because I was actually thinking that because I've, I've actually listened to, unfortunately, every podcast that they put out on the they got multiple podcasts now so world economic forum podcast great reason i got a podcast world versus virus and they have another one on world on fire which is all about global warming but in the reset one they always start out with uh making the world fair it's that's that's their bumper sticker every time we're more equal more fair so, exactly and as you say um, you know what do you mean by that does fair mean okay we take everything and spread it around so everyone has an equal amount uh does fair mean that people are put in a position where they're not starving to death you know does fair what exactly does that mean and the fact that and and this is really a critical part of education that's missing is to have specific principles by, and specific definitions. And I, I would uh, refer people to, there's a glossary on CESJ's website at www.cesj.org called the Glossary of Terms. And in that we uh, take the traditions that have occurred over the centuries from Aristotle to Aquinas uh, to the founders of America looking at the question of justice and economic justice and social justice. What do they mean precisely and how do you do them in terms of an act? How do you, what is, what are the guidelines, for example, not only for how we behave with each other, you know, the question of ethics, but also in terms of how we structure the common good and our society so that it can bring out the best in each of us and discourage our worst tendencies. Um, it, it also raises the question of, and they talk about equality. What do you mean by equality? Well, as Mike has said, each of us is equally human. Each of us is entitled to the same, these same basic human rights. No one is entitled to more or less. So, you know, in, from that standpoint, that's one notion of equality that we would agree with. In terms of equality of results, though, when you think about the differing um, um, amounts of input people may contribute, um, is it fair that someone who contributes much less or nothing gets the same amount as someone who's put their whole, uh, all their labor, all their time into creating something? So you have a question of, is that fair? Um, so when you have definitions of, for example, economic justice that tell you everyone has an equal right to participate in the production of goods and services, whether through their labor or through their capital ownership or a combination of both, okay, now you have a universal way of determining participation and contribution. And you could be in a coma and you could still be contributing the use of your capital towards production. So we look at yeah, it also be on someone's S list. And I mean, if you want to talk about fair and, you know, by my established criteria for fairness, what the Chinese have done with their social credit system is brilliant. Everybody starts with a thousand points. And if you do socially desirable things, you get more points. If you do socially undesirable things, you get points taken away which, and eventually you may end up on a blacklist. You may not even be allowed to earn a living or to eat. You may not get health care, but that's fair because you must be punished for not being social, acting in socially desirable ways. So the Chinese social credit system is eminently fair. Whereas what we're talking about by the Chinese standards is not fair at all. 
You mean that person who is lying in a bed in a coma gets the full stream of income from what he or she owns, the same as if he was working for it? How fair is that? I mean, but it is according to principles of justice, which well, means, now, yes, if you want justice. But, yeah, so that so I think we, we these are questions that we think education is not putting forth to, to, to people from, from, from their earliest years all the way through their doctoral all, uh, degrees. By the way, all of Michael's haters are now going to say Michael wants the Chinese social credit yeah, score. <laughs> no, what we need is a clearly defined set of principles of justice so that we know how each of us can contribute, a la George Mason, the right to the means to acquire and possess property, and then how we are able to use that property interest to determine our fair share of what is produced. So you take this out of the realm of arbitrary decision by external forces, whether that's you know the collective deciding this or the government deciding this, and you start to put power and rights back in each of us as human beings. So that's, it, it is um, clarity, it's having but it is it comes down to power where should power start who should have power if we allow it to concentrate in any place in any person or any body then it will it means the rest of us will not have the means to protect ourselves we will not have the means to determine for ourselves what our actions are going to be so it will come down to the question of power justice and property is that connection in justice between participation and distribution which it can be summed up as we try to with four words own or be owned promote the uh promote the book and websites yes well we um encourage people to uh to, to get a copy of the book and you can actually get a free pdf of economic personalism property power and justice for every person on the website of CESG. But we also um, hope people will buy copies through Amazon. Um, or Barnes and Noble. Or Barnes and Noble. And, um, and to put up their comments, their ratings, their reviews, and just let people know that there is this a, a different set of ideas. And they're part of our traditions. They just have, have not been put together in a coherent form so that we see how all these strands of thinking come together. And so we hope that this book is an introduction to that, to open up the conversation and, and to allow people to see there's another alternative between monopolistic or plutocratic capitalism and collectivist socialism or communism or welfare statism. There we are the Borgism. Yeah, exactly. Borgism. <laughs> Let's get it back to people, to each of us. Yeah. In fact, one of the reasons why we made the PDF available for free instead of putting it out in standard ebook form, where you get tons of money for actually producing nothing but duplicating a file, is that if you think there's someone you think should read the book, it's fairly short. It's, it's 152 pages, which for a book is pretty short. I mean, we priced it as low as we could, but we're also giving it away free so that you can duplicate it as many times as you want and send it to people you think should read it at no cost to you. I mean, email will cost you nothing except for whatever you pay for your server, whatever. And if you think someone should read it, tell them so and give it to them. Exactly. We hope that Pope Francis will get a copy of it, too. Actually, uh, multiple copies, so he can give them to all the friends he has left. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's actually who the book was originally intended for, was Pope Francis and the scholars at the Vatican, because I don't think they're aware of this idea, even though it comes out of the tradition of the social encyclicals. They may be aware, but um, I, I don't want to start putting my head, putting yeah. what, what they think. But it's yeah. some. I, think it, I read. I if you I read the I read his and uh, the last chapter is basically everything we've been talking about with the fourth industrial revolution, the reset. It's 
uh, fairness, uh, equality, you know, ev everything that's everything that I've spoken about on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. He matches in the end. So, uh, sadly, he's involved. He's connected to this, unfortunately, big time. Well, we have we have to hope that if he really becomes aware that there is a way to address every single one of the problems that he raises, and he's rightly concerned about them, that there is a more um, a more human way to address these, more empowering, but also um, a more socially just approach to solving these problems. Uh, we hope he will give it you know adequate consideration and I we hope that the scholars at the Vatican who are advising and maybe doing some of the writing also um, are aware of this but if they don't take this seriously we're hoping all of us who are being affected by decisions will come to understand there is another alternative based on justice and that's that's people power and that's important too Michael, Don, appreciate it as always. And uh, yeah, we'll do another one uh, next week. Thank you very much, Steve.